John chapter 6. I invite you to turn back to that passage that we read. Entitled the message tonight, Saved When? Saved When? Let's just unite our hearts together in a word of prayer as we come to the preaching of God's precious word. Father in heaven, we bless the Lord for thy presence already in our midst. Where the two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I. I was promised to be in the midst of them. Lord, we bless thee. We're still in the day of the Savior calling, calling souls, calling sinners unto himself. We pray, Lord, that thou might solemnize our thought as we come to this passage and to this solemn subject. Lord, that I would give us understanding. Oh, God, to that end, we need the help of the Holy Spirit, the divine author of the Scriptures. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh upon us. I pray that thou might fill me with thy Spirit. Thou might give me words that must and shall prevail. Give us, Lord, those prevailing words. We'd say, Lord, tonight have thine own way. Lord, we pray that thou would take full control. Oh, hear our cry. Bless thy children. Thank the Lord for thy people. Thank the Lord for their faithfulness in coming out to the house of God. We thank the Lord for those who are faithful in prayer. Lord, we pray that their souls might be blessed again tonight. For we never tire in setting under the gospel been preached. Lord, abide with us. Lead us out now after thee. Teach us. Do us good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We learn, and we know from the scriptures, that not only is the devil real, but he is subtle. And we're not to be ignorant of his devices. It is in just a couple of chapters' time that you will find the Lord speaking about the devil. And he said this, when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Men and women, young people, those words simply instruct us that here is one of the tactics in the devil's armory. And it is a well-used tactic, and is that of lies and telling lies. And it's a tactic that he used from the beginning of time. You cast your mind back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. We read that he approached Eve as that serpent, more subtle than any beast of the field, and he was to use deception and lies. He sought to question the truth of God's word. He said to Eve, Yea, hath God said that ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And that was a twisting of indeed what the word that God had said unto her first parents. He replies to Eve in verse 4, Ye shall not surely die. The devil is about lies. Even in religious circles, when it comes to God's word. And the same tactic he employs to this very day, whereby men and women are led to believe half-truths, or they are led to depend upon a misinterpretation of the word of God, and it's a lie. John chapter 6 contains many witty matters. 
If we were to read further on, we read of how the Lord was to uh, teach even in the temple area. It is also the chapter that opens with the great feeding of the multitude of 5,000 men besides women and children. We have the Lord also coming to the disciples in the boat, walking on the sea and arriving at Capernaum on the other side. Inasmuch as those who had been in his company the previous day and they noticed that his boat wasn't there and he wasn't on the mountain, they were to go also. But they wondered how he'd got there before them. Verse 25 says, And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? They couldn't understand it, that he had arrived in front of them. But you know, it was his teaching that gave rise to the murmuring spirit when he taught them that he was the bread that came down from heaven. You look at the words of verse 41. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. The devil is ever ready to cast aspersions upon the word of the Lord. He's ever ready to cause that bitter spirit to rise up within the heart, even of those who have seen the power of God and of those who have heard even the Savior teach and preach. But it is to some words of the Savior that follow. As he spoke to these Jews that I desire to bring to your hearing tonight. For their words which are, which if misunderstood, not correctly understood, or even passed over, will consequently lead many to believe in a lie of the devil. And men and women that lie that the devil says to the sinner every meeting, week after week, month after month, is that you can be saved when you like. What the Savior highlights to these Jews is that their greatest need was God's grace in order to be saved. And that truth hasn't changed either for you today. And that's why I've entitled the message, Saved When? I draw you to my text of Scripture, verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Won't you notice the waywardness of the soul? The day after the feeding of the 5,000 was experienced, you'll find the great crowds of people were again to be found seeking the Lord. And when they realized that neither his disciples nor the Savior were at the mountain where they had been fed, they too were to cross over unto Capernaum. Verse 24, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. That was, of course, the place where he had based his earthly ministry. Yes, he was brought up in Nazareth, but he was to base his earthly ministry in the place called Capernaum. It was a place greatly blessed. But don't get the impression that as you see this crowd making their way across in those boats to that place called Capernaum, that here's a great revival that has suddenly broke out. A mass of 5,000 people besides women and children and they're seeking to follow the Lord. Men and women, that's not the case. As the Lord knew what was in their heart, He knows every motive. 
There were those who were looking for the signs and the wonders. And their real desire was not the way of salvation, but rather the material bread that they had been filled with the day previous. Because the Lord exposes that in verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. And the Savior was to teach them that he was the bread that the Father had given from heaven. And that saying was to cause them to murmur and had brought to light the waywardness of the soul of men and women. By which the Savior was to teach them in verse 44. For he says to them, no man can come unto me. Here was a great number of people, one who had heard the teaching of the Savior, one who had received graciously from his hand, for we remember that every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from above, from above, from the Father of lights with whom there's no verbalness, neither shadow of turning. There were those who had traveled a great distance in order to see Christ and to be in his company. And yet for all of that, there were those who were not seeking salvation. Natural man has not the ability to come unto the Lord. Man left to himself will never come to the Lord for salvation. That was witnessed in the very beginnings of time. You cast your mind again back to uh, those early chapters in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3 in particular. For when Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden, when they realized their nakedness, when their eyes were opened, what did they do? Did they run to the Lord God? Did they run in order to seek forgiveness and salvation from death? No, instead, they turned to the works of their own hands. And they were to start to sow, to gather the fig leaves, to make themselves aprons. And when they heard the voice of the Lord God coming in the cool of the day and say, Adam, where art thou? Did they run to God? No, they did the very opposite. They ran away. And they sought to hide themselves even behind the trees of the garden. They didn't come to the Lord knowing that they needed to be saved from His wrath. The very opposite was the case. And so immediately we're staring at a great problem here. Man cannot get saved whenever he likes. For he is absolutely in an inability to come unto God in the first place. The will of man does not allow him to do that. The will of man is against God. That is seen moreover because natural man is material minded. These people to whom the Savior was speaking were after the physical bread. Indeed in the opening words of the chapter you look at the words of verse 2 for example. We have it outlaid for us. Verse 1, after these things Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee which is the Sea of Tiberias and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles which he did in them that were diseased. There's their motive. They just wanted to see the miracles. They wanted to see the signs and wonders. They were only following because of those things that they'd heard that the Lord had done for the diseased. They were after more of the spectacular. They were after following in the material. And all the time they had no thought about their own soul. And isn't that what we are taught by the Apostle Paul and the church there at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 14. For it tells us, 
I beg your pardon, chapter 2 and verse 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man receiveth not. You see that little word there, that phrase? It means there's no welcome. The natural man doesn't welcome Christ or the things of God. If you want proof of that, indeed it is so. Why not consider yourself? Maybe you can look back for those that are saved. Maybe you can look back for how long you sat under the preaching of the gospel and yet you were unmoved. Maybe I'm preaching to those tonight and you're unsaved and how often have you sat under the preaching of Christ? You know the need of your soul's salvation. You've heard about the Savior, the only Redeemer, and yet you yourself are still not saved. You have not come to the Lord that you might have life. Why? It's because you're yet materially minded. And you consider little of the things that are spiritual. It also brings us to the conclusion that whatever methods are used in modern evangelism are doomed to fail and to be useless. You know, there's a suggestion in many quarters today that although the message doesn't change, the methods have to change. And that in turn leads to a, a, a compromising with things which never would have been named in the house of God 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Oh, but these are the methods that will see people brought into the church. The loud music is what young people are looking for. The squeezing of the preaching of God's word into a little epitaph at the end of the service is what people desire. Sure, they can't concentrate on the preaching of the word for any more than five minutes. These are the methods that we must employ today. You know, we have Paul's word to young Timothy. He spoke of that day when would not, people would not endure sound doctrine. They wouldn't have a stomach for such truths. There'd be just a tickling of the ears. They would turn on to fables. And that is very much what is seen in the day in which we're living. Yet consider that Paul did not advise Timothy to employ other methods. Other methods to reach them with the gospel. But rather he was exhorted, Timothy, preach the word. Be in season, out of season. Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of your ministry. That remains to be God's means of reaching the needy soul with the only message of hope. We have words here which are universal in their application. You see, notice verse 44 again. The Lord says, no man can come to me. No man. That applies to all concern. It applies to the churchgoer. It applies as well to the soul that never darkens the house of God. It applies to the good living so-called person, as well as to those who may be described as those on the dirty side of the broad road. And if, you, if none can come unto the Lord, then it proves you can't get saved whenever you like it. No man can come. You see, that refers to the moral 
inability. It's not the physical inability. The impotence is in man's will. The will of man is not for the gospel. It's not for Christ. It's not for God's salvation. And there's the impotence and there's that inability of the will to come. And if I can just illustrate it in a, in a very physical sense, because I read, you don't need to turn to it, but Genesis 37 uh, brings us into the house of Jacob, you, of course you know, and uh, the, Joseph was the favored son, and the, boy, the brothers, they despised him. And we read this in Genesis 37 and verse 4, And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. It's literally, literally is like this. They would not speak peaceably unto him. And that's the sense. The will of man cannot seek the Lord. I wonder, has that been the promise that you built your life upon? Maybe your hope for heaven one day. I'll get saved when I like. You will not come to Christ now, but when it comes to die, then I'll get right with God. Ah, dear friend, you're depending on something that is impossible for the soul of any man. And you might say, preacher, if that is so, a man can't come to Christ, are we not as good as lost forever? That's right. That's right. For Romans 3 and 11 tells us there's none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh after God. And that soul will go on to ask a question, preacher, if that is so, how then can I be saved? And that's why I want to lead you now to show you the work of the Spirit. For while we have looked at natural man and those opening words and his inability to do anything for himself, it is then that we must look outside ourselves. And we must realize that we need the supernatural work of God by the power of His Spirit if our soul is to be saved. Look at the verse. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. And now we're seeing the absolute necessity of the Holy Spirit to work on the souls of lost mankind. Here's something that's supernatural. It is that which the Lord spoke about to Nicodemus that night in which he came to him. He said, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof. And canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. For a soul to be converted and saved, the Holy Spirit first of all must open, must open the blinded eyes that they see their need. And with the opening of the eyes is the opening of the understanding, not only to realize their lost condition, but to see the need and the provision of God's salvation. Men or women, if you don't realize that you're sick, if you don't realize that you have a, a, a temper a, a, and that you have a, a distemper, I should say, or, or some illness in the body, you will never make that phone call. You will never go to the doctor's surgery. 
And God by His Spirit must open the blinded eyes first and show you your state, your undone state, before you'll realize and see your need and provision of God's salvation. Is that not seen even in the examples that are given in the Old Testament Scriptures? I I draw you to think for a moment just of Hagar. Remember how Hagar was thrust out uh, from the home of Abram? And she went into the wilderness, and there uh, she sat down, fearful of the child, because they had no water. They're dying from thirst. Her son was ready to perish. And we read the words in verse 19, And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled a bottle with water, and gave the lad drink. God had to open her eyes in order that she might see that well of water. A thirsty soul, yet she couldn't see the provision of the well. And so that speaks to us in the spiritual context that God must open the eyes of the blinded sinner that they might see the provision of the well of salvation and of that water from which only Christ can give and from which the sinner will never thirst again. Of yourself you will never see the well. But you see, this is the work of God's Spirit. The same truth is taught in Exodus chapter 15, where this time in the journeys of Israel there was water, but it was water they couldn't drink because it was at Marah. They called it Marah because Marah means bitter. But I want you to note the words of verse 25. And Moses here, he cried unto the Lord. And the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet, that he made for them a statue and an ordinance. And there he proved them. Following the cry of Moses, the Lord was to show him a tree. And that tree had to be cast into those bitter waters. And the miracle was wrought. They were made sweet. And men and women, so it is in the gospel. The eyes must be opened. And God must show you a tree. The tree of Calvary. If you're ever to be saved. For consider that although there is a way that has been opened up from the dark paths of sin. And a door has been opened that you sinner may enter in. It is at Calvary. That's where you must begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. The natural man thinks nothing of Calvary. It makes no sense to him what happened there. It's not what we read again in what Paul brings there to that church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1 In verse 23, he says, But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. God, through the power of His Spirit, opens the eyes in the truth of Calvary and of Christ crucified. It takes on a new meaning. And the eyes are opened and the understanding is enlightened so that you realize the object of true saving faith is not a precept, it's not a principle, it's not a church, it's not a denomination, but it is the person, the only person of God's beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior and Him alone. And that leads you to consider that the work of the Holy Spirit is to draw the sinner unto Christ. 
We know from the teaching of the Lord himself again found in John's Gospel, chapter 16, this time, that the Spirit will not speak of himself. Verse 13. This is one of the longest discourses of the Lord that you'll find. He's writing, he's he's in the presence of his disciples. He's speaking to those in the upper room. Remember, Judas has gone now to do his own work. He was never saved. And the Lord speaks about the third person of the Trinity. He speaks about the Comforter. For only the child of God can understand something of this. He says, how be it when he, underline it, the Holy Spirit is not some thing, not some feeling or power, He's a person. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. It is the work of the spirit to speak of Christ. It's the spirit's work to glorify Christ. Look at the words of verse 14. For he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. What does the spirit show unto the sinner? It is a sufficiency of what Christ has done upon that cross to save his people. It is the Savior who took upon himself the form of man, yet without sin. He came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it on our behalf. And upon the cross, he was to die that atoning death. He was to shed his own precious blood. As we consider this morning, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And upon that cross, he was to finish that work, that death in the place of sinful man, bearing the punishment, bearing the wrath of a thrice holy God for our sin in his own body on the tree. And the Lord demanded the shedding of blood. Christ poured forth his own life's blood so that you, you sinner, might be saved, that your sins might be covered and atoned for, and they might be dealt with for all time. I tell you, there is a fountain that has been opened up in the house of David for sin and for uncleanness. I wonder, have you availed yourself of the cleansing power of the Savior's blood? It's Christ and his atoning sacrifice that you alone must depend upon for salvation. And that is what the Holy Spirit shows to the lost soul in their sin. And when you look upon him who was pierced, and you realize that the Lord Jesus Christ, he is all that you need, then you know the Spirit of God has been drawing you and causing you that, to have that supernatural response in your heart to the gospel, where before you had no time for it, now there's a listening ear, where before you maybe didn't read the tract that was placed into your hand, now there is that desire to read it. There's that supernatural response that God has put in your heart. I wonder, can I ask, has the Spirit of God been striving? Has he been convicting you of your sin? And you can say, preacher, to me, if you're honest tonight, I can't sleep right. I can't do my work right. My mind's not on it. Uh, The Word of the God is coming to me time after time and again. That's God's Spirit striving. 
That's God's Spirit causing that supernatural response in your heart. And men and women of God's Spirit is striving with you and convicting of your sin. Then I take the words of the Scripture. Today, if you'll hear His voice, harden not your heart. For God's Spirit will not always strive with man. You see, in my text, we have the work of the Spirit of God. For while no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me, draw him. That's the Lord that draws by his Spirit the souls of men and women who need God's salvation. That leads me just to bring a note on the way of salvation. For when we read these words, we must understand this is not some notion of a preacher. The very fact that no man can come unto Christ when they like is actually a doctrine. And that is clear when you read the next verse. Read with me verse 45. It is written in the prophets. And they shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. You see the Lord is teaching them their scriptures. The Jews who prided so much themselves in knowing the Scriptures. He's taking them back there. He's taking them back to Isaiah. It's written in the prophets. And when we read those words, the sinner is clearly confronted with the way of salvation. You say, preacher, how can I be saved? Look at it. Every man therefore that hath heard. That's the first thing. There must be the hearing. And you'll note that God uses his word as an instrument to bring souls unto salvation. Words of Romans 10, verse 14, are maybe familiar to many. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher. And verse 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Saving faith is not something that man is able to work up. It's a gift of God. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And dear loved one, you can know saving faith through hearing the word of God. For consider that it is the Word which is able to make thee wise unto salvation. It is the entrance of God's Word that giveth thee light. Salvation is through hearing the Word of God. I want you to remember what Peter writes. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23. He says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. You think of seed. Natural seed can corrupt. Farmer can go out and he can buy what, what is termed certified seed. Well, sometimes that's not maybe living up to its name. And it goes bad. It's corrupt. But we're dealing tonight with God's incorruptible word. It liveth and abideth forever. And even though you can go out of the house of God and you've done so many times before, yet God can cause that seed 
to rise up again. It liveth and abideth forever. But more than that, the rest of the verse goes on and states, in verse 45 of John 6, Every man therefore that heard and hath learned of the Father. There's the learning from that word. In other words, the Holy Spirit must apply the word to the sinner's heart. And when God does that, then the sinner learns that he's not right before God. He learns that all have sinned, including him or her who might be a churchgoer, and all have fallen short of God's glory. They learn that their sin is condemning their soul to a Christless eternity. They learn that of themselves they're bankrupt. And they cannot, through any work, save themselves. They learn that they need to be saved. They learn that they need to experience the new birth. They learn that there is but one Savior who can save them. Just as God showed to the Israelites there's only one means of escape on that night of Passover. It was through the Lamb. There's only one who can save. For there's only one who has paid it all. Who has finished that work on the cross of Calvary. And it is to him the sinner must trust and rest their soul and their eternity upon. And that is the glorious person of the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. The sinner learns that if they will repent of their sin, if they will turn to Christ, you know there's a welcome guaranteed. It's guaranteed them. You say, where do you see that? Didn't we read it? Go back to verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Who is in that all is not my business or the preacher's business. That's God's business. But all that the Father giveth to Christ shall come to him. But look at it. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. There's its personal now. The sinner who comes to Christ by faith, recognizing that they're undone before a holy God, recognizing they need God's salvation, they're guaranteed a welcome. The Lord says, I'll in no wise cast out. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Dear soul, you must come to Christ and the power of God's Spirit enables you even to do that. But in coming, You'll receive that welcome just as much as the prodigal who returned from the far country to the father's house. You know, in the far country, he'd come to himself. And he says in verse 18, Luke 15, I will arise and go to my father. will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. Verse 20, And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. There was a welcome. And in coming, not only will you have the assurance 
that you will be welcomed and God shall pardon you and God shall wash away your sin and save your soul. But you'll also have the assurance that one day you'll be brought into the very presence of Christ in heaven and that for all eternity. You see, the end of our text in verse 44 says, and I will raise him up at the last day. There's a promise. And you know, men and women, it's a promise that's repeated three times in just a number of verses there. You look at it, the end of verse 40, and I will raise him up at the last day. You look at the verse 54, again at the end, and I will raise him up at the last day. God gives a promise three times over. I can get saved whenever I like. On the authority of God's word that we have looked at tonight, we have seen that's not true, it's a lie. You're dependent upon the grace and the mercy of God. And only when God's Spirit reveals Christ to you can you be saved. Saved when? That's when. And that is what God's people have been praying concerning you. And you would come now. Has God revealed himself to you tonight? And dear loved one, hasten to Christ now. Be saved. For behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed to see the missions. It's now. While God's Spirit is striving with you. May the Lord bless His Word to every heart tonight, even to the salvation of those not saved.